Well, this morning we have the opportunity to turn to Romans chapter 8 and pick up in this incredible study of God's Word and so rich, this section of Scripture. It is so practical for us. There are seasons where we're working in our study and it's just uh, we're learning truths and uh, and rich things, um, but they don't seem as applicable. And then we come to season, you know, seasons like this where we're working through texts that are so rich, so applicable, they just shape our thinking and life and practice. And so this is one of those sections. We have started in, already in verse 1 and we saw that first glorious truth that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we realize that rich, marvelous truth that there's nothing that is going to keep us from being reconciled to God. There's no fear of punishment. There's nothing looming over our head. There's nothing that is keeping us separated from God, nothing we have to do to complete the marvelous work of Christ. He's accomplished it all. And so we can enter boldly into the presence of God, which is encouraging to us whenever we sin, whenever we fall short, whenever we're away, aware of our own frailties and humanity, that we can turn to God and draw near to Him. Not like the way it was before Christ, before we were born of God. The way Adam and Eve, when they took of the tree, ran and hid from God, ashamed at what they had done, While that should be our natural response in Christ Jesus, we have a different response. We are able to draw near to God, to put an end to the rebellion, to be restored to him. So it's so rich and applicable to us that there is no fear from drawing near to God because of the accomplished work of Christ. And the second marvelous truth we saw in verse 2 is that we have a new law. We have the spirit of life ruling within us. We have this new principle of life that has made us alive, made us sensitive to the things of God, made us uh, capable of walking in newness of life because of the powerful work of the Spirit within us. And this is mightily encouraging to us in our sanctification because whenever we feel that kind of uh, despair, that it's too hard, it's too much, the, the, the demands of God are too high, that we can't walk it the way we ought to walk, we're reminded we have the Spirit of God within us, the Spirit of life. We have this new principle of life that's given to us in Christ Jesus that's made us alive to God. And we're not in the, the law of sin and death. We're not under those things. We're under the new law, the law of Christ, the We have the Spirit of God ruling and reigning within us to help us overcome. So we're not despairing. We're not hopeless. We're we're not in the sense that we feel trapped. We have God's riches and grace given to us through His Spirit. And then last week, we saw the marvelous truth in verse 3 and 4, that we are victorious. What the law could not do, God has done. God has made us holy, made us righteous, God accomplished what the law could not accomplish. God satisfied all of the law's demands. And we would ask, well, what demands are that? There are positive demands and negative demands. The positive, that we must be righteous. We must be holy as God is holy. And Christ has satisfied that for us. He has lived perfectly and it is his life credited to our account. So the positive demands of the law are satisfied by Christ on our account and is credited to us so that God would look at us and see us as if we kept his law perfectly. 
The second is also true that the demands of the law for punishment because one violates have also been satisfied in Christ. This would be the negative side. Any command, any law we disobeyed deserves a punishment. The punishment is death. And that has been satisfied by Christ as well. So that all that has been required by the law has been satisfied in Christ. And whoever is in Christ has satisfied the demands of the law. So we are victorious. This is hopeful to us. I mean, then as Christians, here's the hope for us. Whenever we live, we don't live looking backwards. We live looking forwards. We look forward to the grace of God. We look forward to his mercy. We look forward with hope and anticipation. We strive for righteousness. We're not looking back in despair. Like everyone who's under the law is looking back at all of their failures. I didn't keep it. I kept falling short. That's all they could do, but not for us. We're victorious in Christ. We're looking forward, forward to the things to come, forward to reconciliation, forward to the fulfillment of all of God's riches and mercies upon us. So we live victorious. We live in this newness of life and hope so that we strive Strive to be holy as God is holy. We strive to be perfect as God is perfect. We strive to live in this newness of life because these rich graces given to us. And that's just the first three. There's so many more here. So we move on to this next truth in verses five through eight, where Paul begins to explain to us the answer to this natural question that we would have is how do we enact or enable or operate according to these graces? How do we live them out? How do we take these powerful truths that we have learned and begin to apply them in our life and work them out so they're ruling and reigning among us? That is what Paul explains here in this, these verses. Let me just read them for you. We're looking at verses 5 through 8 this morning, and here's what Paul writes. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, this section is, again, so much is going on that we're going to spend a lot of time having to set it up, and I'm only going to get to the first point this morning. We'll get at the next two next week. But I have to set it up because we have to see all that's going on here. I mean, coming to this text, even as I was wrestling with this text this week, this text feels like Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, everything looks so good. Everything's worthy to be put on the plate. So we put it all on the plate because we have to have it all, and yet it is so much. Well, it's the same thing here. There's so many truths at work, so many ideas that we just have to pull out each one before we can get down to what is the thrust of what Paul is talking about. Because he is certainly talking about the Spirit. He is certainly talking about fleshly living. But he's also talking about the mind and what we think upon. And yet there's one clear point, one clear purpose he's making. And so we have to work through all of those details in order to understand what Paul is getting at. Just as a flow, so we see what's going on. 
Paul starts chapter 8, verse 1, with a discussion about the work of Christ. Here's what Christ has done for us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we have the spirit of life in Jesus Christ who has set us free from death, verse 2. And then he moves to the work of the Father. Father sent his Son so that the requirements of the law would be accomplished in us. And now from verse 5 through verse 17, he is going to begin to discuss the work of the Spirit of God. This is what the Spirit of God will do in us and among us and through us. So that what we see again in this marvelous chapter of Romans chapter 8 is the full Godhead at work at sanct- of saving us and sanctifying us, transforming us. And we come into this section which is an emphasis on the Spirit of God. But even before he gets to the Spirit of God and what the Spirit is going to do from verses 9 and following, he talks about the contrast, the negative, what gets in the way of the Spirit, and that is the flesh. That's where we find ourselves. He's talking about in this negative aspect, what gets in the way of the Spirit's influence or rule in our life. It is the flesh. So this topic of the Holy Spirit, this topic of the Spirit is critical for us to understand because there's a lot of confusion today as to what the Spirit's work is. You can get a bunch of evangelicals together and you can ask them, what is the Spirit's work? And I guarantee you it's going to be all over the map. There are going to be some people who say, well, the Spirit works today by the Spirit talking to me. He talks to me directly. He gives me an impression. He speaks to me. I hear his voice. So the Spirit is leading leading me by directly talking to me in various ways, they will say. He gives you impressions. He reveals God's specific will for you, for your life. So he talks to you and directs you. And so they will say, that's how I know the Spirit is leading me because the Spirit is telling me directly what I am to do. Or others who would say, well, I know the Spirit's leading me because the Spirit is making my life more enjoyable. He's filling me with laughter. You might even have the kind of holy laughter where you're rolling around on the floor, where you, you're filled with such a, a laughter, a hysteria, that that is, clearly must be the Spirit because He fills your life with joy. Or for others, they may be in the category that the Spirit is giving them some kind of supernatural experience. They are saying that they they can validate and know that they are of God because they have a supernatural experience. They are privately praying in an unknown language, a a heavenly language, they say, or they are speaking in a, in a, a, a tongue to others and it's being interpreted, or they're raising the dead or they're healing the sick. Not too many of them are walking through hospitals, but they should if they have this various gift. These then are the various ways that people interpret the things of the Spirit and the movings of the Spirit. I think, well, that's rather interesting because if that was the case, you would expect to see that right here in this text. Because this text right here, from verse 5 through 17 particularly, is an explanation of life in the Spirit. This is what it looks like to have the Spirit of God ruling and reigning within you. It is Romans 8, 5 through 17. You know the Spirit is at work within you when these things are manifest. It's rather interesting. I think many have 
impressions, maybe experiences, maybe they heard about experiences, and they say, I want that. And so they go back to the scriptures to find justification for it starting with some kind of personal experience or some kind of desire and then going to the scriptures to justify it and say, see, this is of God. And I, thought, I think, well, one, we, we don't practice that way. You don't go through life that way. In fact, I know if I said this, I want to fly. I'd love the ability to fly. You know, can you think about just zooming right over to see your, my kids in California, no plane ticket, no schedule, no TSA? I'd love that idea. Just head on over. I could fly over there, land, spend time with the family, come on back. No big deal. I love that idea to fly. In fact, as my, one of my professors said in college, I'll be disappointed for the first 10,000 years in eternity if I can't fly. So there is that sense. And I could go to the scriptures and I can justify it. Jesus ascended to heaven. He flew up in the sky. What is, what is that? If Jesus isn't flying at that point, what else is it? When he ascended up into the clouds and disappeared. And if it is the power of God at work within us, and it's the same power that raised Jesus into the skies, well, why can't that power be at work in me right now? I'm not about to jump off bridges, but I know that's not the way it works. Nor is any, is any charismatic is consistent in their practice. That's what they would have to be able to justify, that I can take my experience and read it back into the text and find a text that would justify their belief. Why is that wrong? Well, because that's not what God mandated. It's not what God taught. And what we see here is this is what God teaches about life in the Spirit. It is right here. What we can expect that God would do when one is filled with the Spirit is exactly what he reveals in verses 5 through 17. This is how God works. This is how you can identify, are you a Spirit-filled person or not? Are you being led by the Spirit? Is the Spirit ruling in your heart and mind? Is the Spirit directing you? Can you have the confidence that you're a child of God because the Spirit of God is moving within you? It's going to operate exactly according to verses 5 through 17 here in this text. The Spirit, who is the Spirit of God, described in verse 2 as the Spirit of life, described in chapter 1, verse 4, as the spirit of holiness, who is the spirit of truth, John chapter 14 says, this spirit is the one we desire to walk according to. The spirit of life, the spirit of holiness, the spirit of truth, the spirit of God. That's what we want to walk by. And this is exactly what Paul is going to teach us here. Let me show you this. Just some observations, and I have to, as I said, I have to set up some ideas here uh, before we can get into the actual outline because these ideas relate together and, and uh, would get us off track if I brought it up later, so let me just give them to you up front and then we can get into the outline. Some observations to make. Notice in verse 5, Paul starts with the word for there, conjunction. It is an explanation of what came before it. Well, what came before it is verse 4 particularly. It says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then this phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
Verse 4 starts the flow of everything that comes next. We're going to identify those who walk according to the flesh versus those who walk according to the Spirit. This flesh and spirit contrast is what Paul is going to explain for us from verses 5 through 8. This is critical. I will be able to identify the work of the Spirit of God in me by what comes here in these verses. Am I flesh-driven or am I spirit-driven? So this leads us to the fourth point of our outline is this. We possess a new way of thinking. We possess here a new way of thinking. Spirit-filled person is led by the things of God, the things of the Spirit, and it starts with how they think. So this whole section is describing for us how to identify the Spirit-filled person. And I guarantee you today, if I sat down and said to everybody, how do you identify the Spirit's working, no one is saying, or few people are saying, analyze how they're thinking. Yet that's exactly where Paul goes here in this text. Notice again, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. It's implied, sets their minds on, implied. Verse 6. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life. And then verse 7. But the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. How do you identify how somebody is being led? Well, you can ask this critical question. What are they thinking about? What are they dwelling on? What is driving their thoughts, their perspectives? Because you can identify one who is fleshly versus one who is spiritual by where their minds are set. How are they thinking? So this is the second kind of critical detail before we get into this text, is that word translated as the mindset on. The Greek word there is phroneo. Phroneo is this word. And this word, again, is used four times in these three verses. And this word is different than the mind. Mind is where we think. What we think, how we think, how we reason is this word phreneo. It's the mindset, is the processing, the interpretation. It's in the mind that we meditate. It's in the mind that we reason. It's in the mind that we imagine. It's in the mind that we develop viewpoints and ideologies. It's, that's the idea here. It's the views, the ideologies, the thinking. He says the views or ideologies of the flesh are contrasted with the views and the ideologies of the Spirit. Let me show you this word used in the New Testament. The first example is over in Matthew chapter 16. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> this word phreneo is speaking again of a kind of categorically as, a, as a, an ideology a mindset, a way of thinking, a pattern of thinking. And we have all kinds of ideologies in, that we operate by. I mean, there are the ideologies of Democrats, and the ideologies are thinking of Republicans. And you, depending on which camp you're in, you start to view the whole world uh, through those lenses. 
You view business life and you view social dynamics through those lenses. We can have, again, the, the differing view of church, even whether you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a, any other flavor of religion, depending on your flavor of religion, you start to view life through those lenses. It's an ideology. It's a viewpoint. Well, one of those comes out here in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, this is a critical point in Jesus' earthly ministry. He has moved away from ministering to all the people, and now he's moved specifically to ministering just to his disciples. Having been rejected by the religious leaders, having been ostracized by them, he's no longer speaking to them plainly. He's speaking to them in parables. He then comes to this point, and they're getting ready to head back to Jerusalem. They're at their farthest point away, and they're getting ready to head back to Jerusalem. And before he does, he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Of course, you remember the marvelous words that Peter responds, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. They've got their theology right. Even Peter himself, he is uh, moved by the spirit there when he says again in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Meaning you are being directed and moved by God, Peter. I mean, at this particular point, if you're Peter, you are, you've just hit a home run. You are at the, your best. You're at your spiritual high. You are speaking words of God, even just extemporaneously. You're being moved by God. So when Jesus replied, I'm pretty sure he's patting himself on the back here. Yeah, I got this. So what comes next is rather shocking. In verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Now, this is a marvelous grace. First of many times that Jesus is going to warn his disciples about what is to come. I'm going to go to the cross and die. It's going to happen by the religious leaders. But what he did here is he just revealed to his disciples the eternal plan of God, the plan from eternity past, the very reason why he was sent to earth, the very reason why he was there, that he was going to die and take, their, take our transgressions and was going to come through these religious leaders And he gave them a revelation of God's will. Divine truth. Divine truth determined by the counsel of God, the very reason why Christ was there, and he told his disciples exactly what's going to happen. What did they do? They fall down and worship and say, thank you for revealing your wisdom to us. You have spoken the words of God and you have given us divine insight into the events to come. We can't even begin to believe the power that you have, that you know the events that are going to happen. No, instead, verse 22, Peter took him aside And began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. The response was, wait a second here, that doesn't fit with my plan. Jesus, I kind of liked hanging out with you. I kind of liked seeing the crowds come. I kind of liked the wisdom that you spoke. 
to us. In fact, who else is going to solve the conflict among the disciples if you're not around? I mean, you've got to be the one to calm all these conflicts that we have. This is not going to happen, Lord. I'm going to take this from you. You're not going to die. To which Jesus replied in verse 23, turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Why? For you are not you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. It's this exact same word that's used in Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. Your mindset is earthly, not heavenly. Your mindset is on man's interests, not on God's interests. You have shaped your thinking around what is purposeful for you, not for God. You're directing your thoughts to man's interests. You are, Peter, you are going against the gospel. You're going against the eternal plan of God. You're going against the very reason why I'm here. You're going against the very church that you're going to be a foundation to. You're going against the gospel of God. Clearly, he went from the highest high of saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, to the lowest of low, being an enemy of the gospel of God all within the same chapter. There's this idea, this mindset, this set of thinking, this contrast. And what strikes me particularly about this passage, this way of thinking is that one can move so quickly from being insightful and able to affirm the things of God only to go radically and quickly against God in their thinking. But Jesus identifies it. Here's the problem, Peter. You have set your mind on man's interests. You're not thinking about God. You're not thinking about his interests. This word, freneo, then becomes a pretty significant word for how we move and operate through life. Turn over to Romans chapter 12. We see this in Romans 12. Romans 12 In verse 3 and verse 6, this word is used two times in each verse. Romans 12 and verse 3 says this, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to notice, to think more highly of yourself, than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Again there, phreneo. As God has allotted each a measure of faith. Meaning, don't think in a carnal way where you're exalting yourself in pride, overanalyzing, your, over-assessing your abilities. But think with sound judgment. See yourself in a proper light. Jump down to verse 16. Again, he uses the same word here. But he says this, Be of the same mind toward one another. Being, again, this is the word for neo. Be thinking the same things. Do not be haughty in mind. Is again, freneo there, but associate with the lowly. Don't be proud. Don't be self-willed. Don't be independent, but be together. Be thinking the same. Be united in your thoughts, in your affections, in your desires. This is the idea. Freneo. One more time, one more place. It's used also, it's used many times in the New Testament, but another example would be uh, Colossians chapter 3. Over Colossians chapter 3. It's used in that famous 
section in Philippians chapter 2 when speaking about Christ and having the same mind as Christ, as the word phreneo there, that he didn't seek his own interests, but the interests of others. In Philippians 2, 2 and following. But Colossians 3, 1 through 2, Paul says this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Notice again what Paul's contrasting here. The believer, the one who has been born of God, the one who's been raised up with Christ, is going to seek the things above. And he says there specifically, set your mind on these things. Dwell on, develop convictions over, uh, meditate on, Form your perspective to think upon heavenly things. It's the exact same word for neo. So turn back to Romans 8 here. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 8. Paul now contrasts two ideologies. So all the people in all the world fall into one of two camps. Does it matter gender? Does it matter culture? Does it matter race? Does it matter religion? It doesn't matter what you come from. All people fall into one of two camps. They are either of the flesh or of the spirit. You are either walking according to the flesh or walking according to the spirit. It is these two overarching ideological categories that people fall into. And the question for us is which one of are we in? Which one do you walk in? And I would even say to you, you and I who walk according to the Spirit get in trouble, i.e. run into difficulties when we drift back to thinking in the flesh. And I'll show you that as we go through this text. But these are two ideological systems, and that's what Paul contrasts here. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. These mindsets are going to be drawn out for us. So it's very important for us to understand this. Here's the key. The way to identify whether you are led by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit is analyze your thinking. What are you dwelling on? What are your convictions, your values, the things that you are appreciating or delighting in? Because that reveals whether you are walking according to the flesh or walking according to the Spirit. How your mind and what your mind is directed on is a clear indicator of one's Spirit-filled or not. Which I love about that because this is exactly then the power of the word of God. Remember what, what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 4 about the word of God? In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 17 is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword able to divide between thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's able to divide joint marrow. It's able to divide the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's able to reveal this very thing. What, is, what are we dwelling on? 
And so in any moment when you and I are in a spiritual battle and we're wrestling, we can go back and take those thoughts to the scriptures and understand, is this of God or is this of the flesh? What is going on here? Because I guarantee you at the moment, if you were to ask Peter, Peter, how are you operating here? When you rebuked Jesus, what were you operating? He would have said, I'm protecting the Lord of the church. I'm protecting Jesus Christ. I'm protecting God's very son. I'm doing something righteous and good. And yet he didn't see it was that very son who revealed to him the will of the father. It was Christ who revealed the plan that was to come. He didn't see how he was working in opposition to God. He didn't take his thoughts captive. He didn't analyze that truth. So what Paul is going to do here then, in verse 5 through 8, is he gives us three ways to evaluate our thinking so that we can see if we're walking in the Spirit. Three ways, and when we want to get an assessment, do I have this Spirit-filled life that is moving in a way that's going to honor God, that's going to be led by the Spirit? There are three things that we can evaluate to verify if indeed we are yielding to the Spirit. The first is this, evaluate your ideological system, verse 5. The second, evaluate the consequences of your thoughts, verse 6. And then evaluate the motives of your heart, verse 7 and 8. And as I said, we'll get to the first one this morning, and then next week we'll pick up the last two. But as these, these are the ways that we evaluate the if we're being led by the Spirit of not, or not. So I, when I interact with anybody, I'm immediately beginning to ask them questions about what's motivating you, what do you believe, what are your convictions and values, what's striving, because you're, if it's a Spirit-filled mind, it's going to be filled with the truth. Here's the first. Evaluate your ideological system. Verse 5, again, Here's where he contrasts the two systems. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on or think according to the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. So what we're looking for is one's thinking, one's affections, one's desires. So how do we then identify what are the things of the flesh and what are the things of the spirit? Maybe I can just give it to you in a few categories, what the things of the Spirit are and the things of the flesh. First of all, let's start in Mark 7, where it starts, fleshly things start in the heart. Jesus said that. Mark chapter 7, we've looked at this before, but it's good to remind ourselves. Mark seven twenty through 23 Jesus tells us the root and the source of all fleshly thinking, it flows from the heart. So he says, Mark chapter 7 and verse 20, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Where does it come from? It comes from the heart. It comes from within. 
People from within, those who are walking according to the flesh from within, are imagining evil things. It's described here, thefts and murders and adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. I mean, for Peter, in, back in Matthew 16, when he was rebuking Christ there, there was a pride that his assessment was better. His plan was better. His route was better than following the plan of Christ. So it starts from within the heart flow these ideas, these rebellions against God. But notice again what the deeds are. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. We see in Galatians chapter 5 what the deeds of the flesh are. Galatians 5 verse 19 and following. Their source is the heart. What they are is described here in Galatians five nineteen through 21. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions. They are envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fleshly person or the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh, or the things of the flesh will manifest in these ways. They're going to be angry, going to be filled with sensuality. It's going to be idolatrous. It's going to be filled with jealousies and strife. Difficulties. These are the fruits of the flesh. Now one might ask, okay, if I know where it begins, it begins in the heart, and I know what it manifests, it manifests in these deeds of unrighteousness, what is the motive driving it? Well, I'm glad you asked. John tells us. First John chapter 2. Turn over to First John chapter 2. John tells us exactly the very root of this struggle. The very root struggle. Here's how I would identify. If someone says, how do you know that somebody's thinking in a fleshly way? And I would say this. When you have a misplaced love and affection. If you have a misplaced love, a misplaced affection, you are thinking in a fleshly way. How do you know that? Well, right here, First John 2, 15 through 17. Notice what John says. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. The one who does the will of God lives forever." Listen, the fleshly thinking, the things of the flesh are the things that demonstrate a love for something other than God. To love something of creation, something of this world, something else other than God. It's a misplaced affection. That is the very root of all fleshly behavior is a misplaced affection. Instead of being directed towards God and the things of God, it's directed towards the flesh and the things of the flesh. To worldly things, carnal things. 
And it starts from the heart. It starts from what one desires. And it moves into their actions. It moves into fruits. It begins to manifest itself in deeds and behaviors. So that by the time you have the deeds and behaviors, here's what I know already. By the time I see somebody in an outburst of anger or somebody walking in immorality in some way, someone envying or etc., what I know is this. They've already privately thought about it and they've already internally desired something else. They've moved from their affections and desires, misplaced, to dwelling upon, to then the fruits and activities. This is of the flesh. Carnal thinking. And this is, again, a powerful effect. It can powerfully move against us because we live in this world. But contrast that with the fruits of the Spirit. We know the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Notice what Paul says in Philippians Chapter 4, Paul says about the heavenly thinking or righteous thinking. Philippians chapter 4 says like this. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. The things of the flesh are earthly, natural, and one who is fleshly is thinking about carnal desires, earthly desires, Things of the Spirit are heavenly, they're righteous, they produce the fruit of the Spirit, the deeds of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. So what Paul calls us to here in Philippians 4 is how we are to think. Notice what he says in verse 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, notice, dwell on these things. Meditate on, delight in. And the things that are excellent and true and pure, basically take your affections and direct your affections on the things of God and dwell there. Live there. So that then it will lead to the fruits of the Spirit in our life. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, etc. It's the things of God that we delight in. That's why we saw there in the Colossians 3 passage, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, not the things on the earth. We set our minds on the things above. We dwell in God's riches and God's glories. Turn back to Romans 8 then. Here's the contrast. Those who operate in the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That is, they're concerned with earthly affections, have earthly priorities. They're not concerned with heavenly riches. Their hearts are being exposed by being idolatrous because they love the things of this world rather than the things of God. And say, so, you know, this is really the heart of all conflict. This is what James gets at. When James says in James 4, what is the source of all quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not your lusts waging war? Lord, in his good kindness and patience with us, reveals to us in conflict 
sometimes we get our affection set on earthly things rather than heavenly things. And it usually does not catch us off guard. I mean, I almost feel, again, just like Peter. I was just a moment ago at the highest spiritual high speaking words of God and a moment later already crashing and burning. That's the way we feel at times in the moment. Moving and along thinking we've got this, we've got, we are speaking truth and we're doing the right thing. And so from that I, I assume then every one of my motives are right. Motives are perfect and pure. I mean, I woke up, I did my devotions, I prayed, I had great communion with God, I even desired to do what's right. So then everything that comes next is immediately pure, immediately righteous, and then conflict comes out. Heart is bitter, and you're trying to protect something, and you're getting angry, and you're resisting. What we're called to in every moment is this. Are we walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh? Are we yielding to the things of the Spirit or are we trying to hold on to fleshly things, fleshly desires? That's the contrast, and it starts here. Do you have a mindset of the Spirit so that the things of the Spirit are more important to you? I'm going to ask you this. If you're in the middle of that conflict and you've dug into a spot, you think, I've got to defend this spot. Let me ask you this. Could you suffer loss like Christ suffered loss? Could you in the moment just say, fine, I will give up my will to serve you in this situation. I will die to myself and my wants so that you win here because it's more important that I love even sacrificially than it is to be right. That would be walking according to the Spirit rather than walking according to the flesh. Could you, in the moment, desire to be at peace at all costs, even when the other person's rebellious, knowing God could work in their heart and change them? Could you desire to protect the things of God more than your personal interests? These would be indicators in the moment that you are walking by the Spirit and not by the flesh. You're concerned about spiritual things, not earthly things. So our first evaluation, I can say, any man walking by the Spirit is going to be walking in holiness, walking in righteousness, demonstrating the love of Christ in their life person who's fighting for their way, pushing for their agenda, even with good intentions and motives, could be just like Peter, going against the very revealed will of God. Spirit-filled man desires the things of the Spirit. So what I appreciate about this is what this first truth, I know a Spirit-filled person has their mindset on heavenly things. This is why no one can be of God and hate the brethren, hate the body of Christ. You cannot hate the body of Christ and be a child of God because John has said no one born of God is going to hate the people of God. Contrary to the mindset of the Spirit. And no one born of God is going to hate holiness. A child of God is going to love holiness and love righteousness because their God is holy and they desire to be holy as their God is holy. And no one who is born of God is going to withhold love because God is love and God shows love to us and calls us to love one another and to love him. And no one born of God is going to hate the truth. They're going to love the truth and draw near to it 
because God is truth and sanctifies us by truth. So we can begin to evaluate our spirit-filled life by this assessment is what ideology are you living in? Are you living in the thinking of the flesh or are you living in the thinking of the spirit? The grace of God is this, is he has given us everything in his word that we need to, to know him now, to know him fully and richly. That's what he says in 2 Peter 1. His divine power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we need, he's given us. It's not everything we want. I have a lot of questions not answered. But it's everything I need, everything that we need to live uprightly and to draw near to him, he has given us and he's given to us in abundance. So when we go back, one would say, well, you know, they have this great experience with the spirit. I would say I have a great experience too. God has taken this undisciplined, weak mind and shaped it to think about heavenly things and delight in it, that is a miracle. Just ask any of my great teachers. Ask anyone. So that true work can take place in any of our hearts as God redirects us to move our eyes off of carnal things to heavenly things. And next week we'll look at the next two implications in our thinking when we come back together. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, Thank you so much for the work that you and you alone can accomplish. When you rescue us from this world and draw us to yourself, causing us to let go of earthly affections, we confess we are quick to turn to earthly things, carnal things, things we can see, for it is easier for us. And it is a life of faith that you called us to, a life that is, again, cultivated and strengthened by your spirit. It is a life that is renewed day by day as we dwell in the truth. And so we pray that we would respond according to your truth, like newborn babes longing for it, that we would work diligently to yield to the spirit in all things so that we would have a spiritual mind able to understand the things of God that we would speak to one another in truth and encourage one another so that if there were any wayward way within us, they would quickly come back to the truth, that we would be guarded and protected by the truth because we know that the evil one would like to take us into greater calamity, to cause us to be distracted, to cause us to take our affections and place them elsewhere. But we as your people desire to be worshiping you and you alone and to experience the riches of your grace in our midst. So help us this morning as we apply this truth to walk in a new mindset, a new ideology, a new thinking, that of the Spirit, so that in all things we would bring you glory. Thank you for this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.